I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. How about that theme song? Spicy. Very spicy. That's by Linus Fitness Center. Find them, follow them, Bandcamp, SoundCloud, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. It's my favorite part of the show. Best part of the show is the theme song. You are listening to Hank, the world's greatest. I am your host. Do you ever fantasize? about listening to Hank. And this episode is a request. On our website, www.deathbydvd.com, you can chat with us, leave comments, request movies, and ever since that feature opened up on the website, we have gotten some interesting things. We did the original six Star Trek series, something otherwise I don't think would have really been featured on this show. That was a request. And a handful more that will be coming on future episodes. But this one comes from a guy named Brian P. Brian shot us an email and it said, I would like to hear Hank's opinion on Fade to Black. Well, all right. 1980, written and directed by Vernon Zimmerman, Fade to Black. Fade to Black! Top of the world! Now, initially, we wanted to honor every request, but some of them, that's just not going to happen. Fade to black, though. That seemed doable. In fact, I thought it seemed pretty easy. And as of the recording of this episode, it's 2021, September, I received this email in early August. So dumbass me, of course, assuming this should be easy. I've encountered, I guess what you could say, are roadblocks when it came to coming up with what I wanted to say, what I wanted this episode to be about. Sure, we can talk about fade to black, that's the point. We're going to talk about Fade to Black. But what about it? Why? Fade to Black is one of those movies that is quote-unquote a lost film. It came out, it had a run, and then for many years it was quite hard to get a copy of it, and it was remembered very well by people of the video store era of the 1980s. And then Vinegar Syndrome released a absolutely insane Blu-ray of the movie. And here lies some of the bumps in the road. I'll probably plug this Blu-ray three or four times throughout the episode, so you're just going to have to get used to it. But it's not like they just put out a Blu-ray. They put out just a jam-packed Blu-ray. It's got a surplus of special features. And, as I was saying, this is considered a quote-unquote lost film. So, for years and years and years, the people that had seen it lauded it. It was written about and covered when it came out, and then Vinegar Syndrome releases it. There is a great boom of general information aside from the Blu-ray that you can find on this movie. There are dozens and dozens of interviews, theories, point-by-point guides of exactly what happens in the movie and what things mean whilst that's happening, and so on and so forth, but that causes a problem for me. So when I came into this, I figured, yeah, we can just talk about Fade to Black. And I like to do research. I like to learn a thing or two before I I take a stab (laughs) at a movie. And what started a really 
get to me is there's a great deal of information about this. Many, many great critics have written about this. It's been covered very widely, and I don't feel at that point after reading dozens and dozens of critiques and reviews of this movie, what am I going to offer differently? Then you can just Google. You can type in Fade to Black 1980, and it's a roller coaster from there on out. Not to mention the Blu-ray. Now I've got this thing in front of me. Let me tell you what the special features are. There are three wow. awesome commentary tracks, one with lead actor Dennis Christopher, who we are going to talk about a great deal on this episode, a commentary track with the Hysteria Continues podcast, which is also, that's really enjoyable, and a historical commentary track with film historian Amanda Riez and Bill Ackerman. Again, that one's really enjoyable. The Dennis Christopher commentary track was a delight. It's one of the best commentary tracks I've heard in a really long time. And I think you guys know I spend a great deal of my fucking life listening to commentary tracks. This one was great. Brad Henderson did the mediating for it. Dennis Christopher just, I said it a few seconds ago, we're going to talk a lot about him. What a delightful person. Just a insanely talented, delightful person. A real artist, a real craftsman of acting. And you can learn a lot about him through all of this. A lot of stuff I didn't know. Some of it will be rehashing on the episode, and I'll try to tell you at, at some points, like, yeah, I got this from the commentary track because I don't want to steal things. The guys at Vinegar Syndrome worked really hard on this, and you can tell. There's an additional interview with Dennis Christopher. There's an interview with executive producer Erwin Yoblins, the Erwin Yoblins, Halloween Erwin Yoblins, Tourist Trap Erwin Yoblins, which appears posters in the movie. There's an interview with the special effects artist. You've got an interview with actress Marcy Barkin, an interview with the composer, a great deal of stuff. Still Gallery, the original trailer. I really enjoy Vinegar Syndrome. I don't have the biggest, most expansive collection, but they put a lot of work into their releases. And this one's really exceptional, but this being so exceptional also causes a problem when you want to do a podcast episode about this movie because there's just so much darn stuff on it and it really encompasses everything the creation of the movie the making of the movie problems with the movie you get very familiar and intimate with the people that created it and the behind the scenes dennis christopher is just wonderful to listen to i would love to hear him just talk about movies in general he should have his own show some commentary tracks are just a gruel to get through and while we're blowing vinegar syndrome here a little bit that is something that I think is unique with at least the last four or five years of their releases, really immaculate work of hunting people down and procuring what is the most enjoyable content for a commentary. It's one of the things I immediately look for when I buy something from them. And speaking of buying from them, you can get this Blu-ray at Amazon, Walmart.com, even Target.com, but it's always better to buy it directly from Vinegar Syndrome. So if you don't have a copy and you're interested in getting one after listening to all this, I would suggest starting there. So I scoured the internet, and I like to go back and find reviews from when the movie was initially released, 1980. And something that I noticed is the majority of them seem to focus on the bare bones of this is what the movie's about, point A to point B, here's the story, here's what happens. And a lot of the things that I will focus on are, are usually mentioned because... I'll just begin now with some of my thoughts on the movie. It really is flawed and has a lot of disconnection. But there's a lot of themes in the movie that don't seem to be evaluated as much. And it's a very layered, nuanced film. But it's one of those things, I can't really say I like it, but I can't really say I don't like it. But I do like it, but I don't like it. So for the last three weeks, I have sat down every day... And I've tried to write something about this movie. I've tried to come up with, what's your angle going to be? And I didn't want to give up hope and just kind of tuck this one away, which happens. We come up with ideas left and right, and some of them don't work. We find out, ah, uh, not a lot to say. And that wasn't the case with this. I just feel most of the things 
to say have been said before, and what am I going to add on just repeating things from the commentary track and interviews that I found on the disc? That offers nothing. And it's been really conflicting. This kept getting shelved, and different episodes would come out instead. And finally, it's just gotten to a point where, you know, it's we gotta figure this out. I love the idea of honoring these requests, but... I went and I read the email from Brian P. again, and something this time stuck out that I guess I had failed to really put a lot of emphasis in beforehand, but his email, I'm going to read it to you right now, word for word. I would love to hear Hank's opinion on Fade to Black. And that word opinion is what I really neglected to notice. We don't need to do, I don't, I don't need to sell this to you. I mean, I just told you where you can go buy the Blu-ray and how you can enjoy it, and, and it really is. I don't. We're not getting anything out of this. I don't know anyone at Vinegar Syndrome. I'm telling you the honest truth as a consumer. I, I bought this Blu-ray. I really think it's fantastic, and I have not necessarily the biggest Vinegar Syndrome collection, but I've got more than one DVD and Blu-ray in my home, and this really is like top 10, top 15 special features. This is worth every single cent, and I'm saying that for a movie I've already established. I really can't say I like it, or I really can't say I dislike it, but the special features on this disc are so fucking good, it's still ranks that high in my collection. See what I'm saying? Sometimes it's the architecture and the thoughtfulness put into things. I might not think this movie is the greatest thing in the world, and I think, as I have made a notion of previously, it's incomplete feeling, but still. You have to appreciate the craftsmanship, not only for the movie, but what was done 40-some years later to re-release it and give it to you in the greatest package. So enough, okay. Vinegar Syndrome's great. Real cool guys. Opinion. Brian wants my opinion. Okay, buddy. I got you. So at least in this sense, I can somewhat offer something a little bit different outside of the average review of this movie. But a lot of the things I'm going to say you have to recognize, if you do have this disc, if you own it, it's not information that you haven't heard already if you've gone through it and you've watched the special features. And that's something I really want to try to avoid. This isn't going to be a history lesson or a fact-based thing. It doesn't really matter. There's no real need to talk about a detailed synopsis of what the plot is and story of this movie, but I will say at this point and from this point forward, the way I'm going to handle this and the way I'm going to discuss the movie is truly my opinion. You're getting good old-fashioned film criticism on this episode. So there will be loads and loads of spoilers, in fact, pretty much everything that I am going to say in some shape, in some form, will be a spoiler. So if you haven't seen the film, stop listening to this episode, jump on Shudder and watch it. I know this sounds like it's some sort of sponsored episode, but... It definitely is not. All right, so before we begin, gonna crack open a nice ice cold Coca Cola. Yeah. There's no sponsorships on this show. I, I actually, I probably could get sued making jokes like that, huh? But there would have to be more than four people that listen to the show for that to happen, right? So, I'm fine. I feel even as I'm saying these jokes, they're missing. Just, pew. <laughs> Talk about the movie, you dumb asshole! Ooh, you suck! How about that, Hank? We decided to listen to the show to hear about a fucking movie. Yeah, I know. I know. Oh, but I'm so lonely. <laughs> What are we talking about? What are we even doing on this episode? God damn, Fade to Black. This has been a thorn in my side since early August. I don't want to dive analytically into this movie because there's so much fucking available. I know I keep repeating myself and it's starting to get mundane. And I guess, I mean, for me, 
trying to create content here, what's unfortunate is what is available is just so fucking good. If it was just some shitty commentary with somebody saying, uh, 30 times in a row, bumbling around about why they like the movie, that'd be one thing, but all three that are available are just really spectacular, and it's like, well, shit. I don't know what to contribute to this already deeply well-contributed-to movie. But I don't want to disappoint Brian, and I don't have a problem with this movie, but I do have a problem with this movie. So lo and behold... I have something to say. The very first scene of this movie, we're introduced to Eric Benford, played by the wonderful Dennis Christopher. And from that point on, a slew of characters are furthermore introduced, more and more and more. And then we get to a point where none of them even really seem to matter aside from Dennis Christopher's Eric Benford. And what makes this movie particularly strange is he is a villain. He is a bad guy. This is a horror movie. A lot of people like to argue that it's more of a psychological thriller, that it's much more dramatic, but I hate to disagree. I don't really see it that way. I think it's a horror movie. It's just incredibly convoluted, and it tries to be many different things. It tries to be very, very nuanced, and at some points it is, and it's exceptionally nuanced, and at other points it's just senseless and bad writing and bad directing. If it wasn't for Dennis Christopher, this movie would have been nothing. There would have been nothing remarkable about it. And when it comes to how it was shot, and I mean, like, colors, I mean techniques, it's not really remarkable. I think, on one hand, the editing makes the movie very fun, but also I think the editing is terrible. And what I mean by it makes it fun is there's a great deal of sequences of golden era Hollywood and monster movies that are cut into the films as fantasies that Eric is having. Director Vernon Zimmerman isn't really remarkable, and his career isn't really remarkable, aside from talking about Fade to Black. And when you begin researching Fade to Black, or watching the special features on the Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray, you'll learn very quickly the most genius the most genius scenes the most authentic scenes the most genuine scenes of the movie are all because of dennis christopher he had been doing some very very successful work around this time period and was definitely a commodity but he had worked with some really esteemed directors and had learned some really terrific things that he brought to the table when it came to this movie and without him i i really and i don't mean to say this in a, a disingenuine or an insulting manner but i think the movie would have been incredibly blank, incredibly bland, that it wouldn't have had any personality if it wasn't for Dennis Christopher and it wasn't for him insisting on certain things being done with the movie. And he truly develops this character. I'm not going to compare him to any other actors. In 1980, there were dozens of actors that easily could have played this Eric Benford character and would have read the script and looked at what was inside of it and had just taken it and run with it. And the shooting script for this movie is beyond boring. It's... I wouldn't even say, like, first-year film school. It's just a horror story. It doesn't really have a heart, and it doesn't really have soul. And Dennis Christopher read the script he was really interested in. I feel what he could do with the character. I think he saw a bit of himself in the character, and it's a very dangerous character. And I don't mean to insinuate that Dennis Christopher is insane, but I see a bit of myself in this character. And I think something, especially with the fandom of this movie... The people that really enjoy this are genuine film fans. They love all eras, all capacities of movies not just horror not just cult not just exploitation but every single genre from musicals to horror and that's where the story comes from and i think dennis christopher is somebody that genuinely loves film he as i say many times more than likely considers it his favorite form of art and he saw something deep within the character of eric benford that he created i mean i think he really birthed this character down to set design 
I'd say 90% of Eric's dialogue was him. He he really fell into this, and I don't know if it was so much method acting or being able to connect so deeply with this idea, but also having a very equally talented cast and crew to work with and bounce ideas off of, regardless of how it happened or what happened. This movie 100% is... The only reason you it's watchable is Dennis Christopher, and I don't mean it like... It's not like a fucking Andy Milligan movie, who I'll probably reference a little bit later when it comes to one of the themes in this film. It It is intriguing. It's not like, I want to dog this movie. It's not shot like a fucking giallo, okay? It's not like beautiful reds. It's not very deep colors. It's not bright red, sexy shots of opera houses. But at the same time, the sets and like the Eric Benford character's bedroom are so layered. They are so detailed. It's one of the things that really enchants you and you, you start feeling the magic with this movie. And all of that is Dennis Christopher. The very opening scene of this movie, when you're introduced to the character, he's in his bedroom. He's fallen asleep watching television. And we see his room, which is just floor-to-ceiling posters of stars. Uh, golden era stars. Boris Karloff, James Cagney, John Wayne. He especially loves Marilyn Monroe. And it's just, it's like a cinephile's dream. It's so much, and you really can't calculate anything. You, you're just looking around and you're, you're registering, oh my god, this is this person and this is that person. But I think what it really services and what it offers is a look into our character's brain. That Before we even get to see him or hear him recite dialogue or is, he's introduced to us, we see him, we see his visage, and then we see his brain that is surrounding him, his comfort, his cave. Like Linus and Peanuts, he carries that blanket around everywhere. The Eric Benford character has created a, a, a blanket of false reality around him with this amazing collage of, of Hollywood, of film. It's great. But you know how sometimes you watch a movie? And you watch it again, and you see different details. You see things that make the viewing experience so much greater than it was before. It becomes magical, and it makes you want to watch it again. It makes you want to see more things that you've missed. This movie is almost the opposite of that. You watch Fade to Black the first time, and you can connect somewhat with the character, to an extent, because throughout the movie, he ends up becoming a homicidal maniac, and it doesn't feel right. It feels disconnected. We just jump from murder to murder to murder, and it's not pleasant. Because, remind you, this is a horror film. So there has to be some horrifying aspect. It can't just be about a cinephile who really likes movies, or else it would be a fucking episode of Death by DVD. Though we've not killed anyone yet. So something has to happen to make this a horror experience. And the movie begins with this sort of whatever-happened-to-baby-Jane feeling that... Because it's time for Keith David or David Keith. A drunken down-on-his-luck adventurer is hired by a wealthy man and his beautiful wife to take them on a hunting expedition in the jungle. (laughs) 
After a while, though, the guide begins to suspect that there's more to the expedition than just hunting. Who directed this 1988 trash movie called The Farther Adventures of Tennessee Buck? Is it Keith David? Oh! Or is it David Keith? It's David Geith. Thanks for playing another spitball round of Keith David or David Keith. If you knew the answer to that, hey, go outside, take a break, and until next time, goodbye and good luck. And now back to Hank. We're introduced to Eric Benford, and then we meet his aunt Stella, played by Eve Brent, who is just awful. She's a ridiculously abusive character, and we immediately get introduced to these very sympathetic themes with Eric Benford. We're supposed to like him, and we'll learn throughout the movie that he is our villain, but at the same time, we're supposed to be sympathetic for him, and we're introduced to him in a really savage sequence. He's in a very abusive situation. He lives with his disabled aunt, and as we venture through the movie, we find out she may actually be his mother, and she blames him also for being disabled. And it's a real old Hollywood archetype. I think, too, a lot of these things is Hollywood, California, L.A. This movie was shot in 1979-1980, so you get to see a version of Hollywood that does not exist anymore. You get to see a part of film culture that's really gone, even his job. He's not just a cinephile, but he happens to work at a film distribution warehouse, so he lives in film. He's using it as escapism, and the very first scene of the movie allows us to see not only with, as I said, kind of a view of his brain, we get a view of the psychological aspects of Eric Benford. He is somebody that, no matter what, wants to escape reality. He has no pleasant reality. He works in a field related to something that he loves, but the people he works with are just miserable. From the opening of the movie onward, we get a cavalcade of characters introduced to us. We meet his Aunt Stella, and then we go to work, and we meet his boss, and we meet co-workers. And all of these characters are supposed to be villains against our villain, but it doesn't work for me. It doesn't really come off that way. He has shitty co-workers, don't we all? He has an asshole boss, don't we all? He has to deal with bullies. It's a part of life. You don't fucking kill them. And I'm not talking about, like, I spit on your grave. <laughs> then you kill them. Yeah, fuck it, I'll agree with Jennifer. Kill them. This isn't that type of situation. He's bullied at work by a guy named Richie in Mickey Rourke's very first role. I love Mickey Rourke. And he's just an asshole, his boss. He's abusive, 100%, I'll agree to that. Does he deserve to die? No, and all of these characters that we're introduced to, the reason we're introduced to them is because they're all going to die, except one. <laughs> And that's Linda Carriage playing Marilyn O'Connor. And none of this really fits together. All of it itself really comes off as a daydream, and it really is bad writing and bad directing. I touched upon this a while back, but Dennis Christopher, every single day working on this film, fought for ideas. He would read the script, and it was blank. It was soulless. It really didn't have any representation of something. And he had created this character really 
three-dimensionally. And what I mean by that is he puts such depth into it that... I don't know if you're familiar with the idea of a tulpa is. I'll leave that for you to Google later on. But he sort of created a tulpa with this character. He brought it to life. A fictional character, uh, an idea you've come up with, this is not verbatim what a tulpa is, that you believe in enough has become real. And it doesn't even seem like acting to me. I, I really disassociate between Dennis Christopher and Eric Benford. And that might sound like I'm saying he's not doing a great performance, but what I mean by it is... I don't see Dennis Christopher at all anymore. All I know is Eric Benford. All I know is that this is who I'm watching. It's so believable to me that I don't realize, oh no, that's, yeah, he was in Chariots of Fire. <laughs> I know who Dennis Christopher is. He was in the It miniseries with Tommy Lee Wallace, because I have to say that, because this is a horror show. But if I can implore you to do anything after you finish this, Sure, go to Vinegar Syndrome and buy a copy of Fade to Black, but see Breaking Away 1979, check that movie out. Dennis Quaid, Jackie Earl Haley, Dennis Christopher, great movie. But to me, it's all reality, and what makes it, I, I, I'm gonna say, a shame is you've got this immaculate, beautiful performance by Dennis Christopher, but unfortunately, and I don't mean this insultingly, but at the same time I do, the director's incompetence and the... Poor editing. This movie jumps so much, and it seems like there was a great deal of storytelling that needed to be included in this movie that I do believe was shot that just didn't make it, and it would have upped the runtime. But sometimes, you know, there's there's two sides to the long movie coin. You can make a really long movie, and I'll use Midsummer for example. I don't mind that it's long, but by the time I got to the end of the movie, there were so many loose ends, and there were characters that were never really dealt with. If you're going to make a three-hour movie, you might as well deal with absolutely everything in that story. Or else, why did you make a three-hour movie? You should have just cut it to whatever would have been palatable, whatever would have made sense and not left loose ends. This movie isn't the case because it doesn't have a significantly long runtime. But there would have been benefit for it being longer because the scenes were essential. And the difficulty with all of this is we're introduced very sympathetically to Eric Benford and we watch his play, we see him bullied, and really just bad timing causes him to snap. What's not brought up and not really focused upon in a lot of reviews is the psychological evaluating of Eric Benford. He's somebody that's in a very abusive situation and has been for most of his life. Well, all of his life. Every minute of his life he's been berated and told he wasn't good enough. He's never achieved anything that was good enough in the eyes of his aunt who was going to be a big Hollywood star if it wasn't for him. And his poor mother died during birth and he's just like his useless father. Every single waking second it's just misery for him so he has used film as an escape method. He's found heroes in Cagney and Richard Widmar. He's found solace deep within film, something that I think not just cinephiles, but horror fans, genre fans in general can relate to that you, uh, there's a great deal of escapism with any form of art, any form of media, music, books, movies, painting, the art of painting, doing it yourself, woodworking, exercise, the list goes on and on and on and on and on and on. You can escape into anything, and it's not always bad. Escapism, honestly, can be meditative. And you could even really make the argument that, like, transcendental meditation could be a form of escapism itself, but that's for a different episode. Or a question you should ask David Lynch or something like that, I don't know. But the way Eric Benford is using escapism has become dangerous, because now he can't really differentiate between what's real and what's not. His reality is... 
I want my life to be the movies. I just want things to be like they are in the movies. And he's run with that so long, incidentally, his life becomes the movies. And something interesting about the character, I'm sure I've said that a lot, because there's a lot of interesting things about Dennis Christopher's character, and I'll expressly say that. He might not have created this character. He might not have sat down and written the name and came up with the idea of this character. You can give that credit to Vernon Zimmerman, writer-director. But he brought it to life. He birthed the character. He gave the eccentric nature of what we, I feel, you can fall in love with. Even though this is a villain, I guess it's kind of like the Joker in the Batman series. We know he's a bad guy. And in some Batman mythology, he's even responsible for the death of Bruce Wayne. Bruce Wayne? I didn't know Mike Tyson was on the show. Bruce Wayne's parents. But we all like the Joker. Well, unless it's Jared Leto's Joker. And it's really because of the unique nature of all the actors that have brought this character forward. You can even go back and look at Cesar Romero in that magenta-suited, green hair version. He kind of set down a tone for the character. Years later, you've got Jack Nicholson, the Heath Ledger performance. Then you've got that guy whose name I think I can say, but I can't say, Cameron Mahonahue from the television show that plays kind of a, a different version of the Joker. All of them have a lot of similarity, but each actor has individually brought it to life on its own thing. And my point is, it's a villain. It's a very bad guy. But we all like him. Um, natural-born killers. You're watching, I mean, they're fucking psychopathic, vicious murderers, but if it wasn't for Woody Harrelson, it wasn't, I mean, it got even Robert Downey Jr. in that movie. Everyone is such a complete and utter scumbag, but you still can't help but feel a, a form of representation for them. In yourself, even though they're, like, psychopaths. And in this movie, it's so conflicting because when we first meet Eric, even if you don't identify with, let's say, his plight or what's happening with him, I think if you found yourself watching this movie, it's because you're into a certain type of film and you can even draw a likening to who he is with yourself. And then it just becomes... This series of unfortunate events of not just bad things happening to him, but he becomes a bloodthirsty killer. And his first kill, quote-unquote, isn't even really his fault. He's kind of snapped. He's been abused so much, the death of his aunt, or is it his aunt? We'll later find out it isn't, and there, I said I'd mention Andy Gil Milligan, there's this incest vibe that he may or may not be having to perform sexual favors for his aunt slash mother for down payments on his allowance, and that's just ignored, too. There's so many themes, there's so many points of this movie that we get introduced to. We have this fucking asinine character of a social worker who's working for the police department. We're introduced to him, he's some harmonica playing, coke-snorting son of a gun. And with that, we get this whole, well, movies are responsible for violence angle, and it feels to me like the beginning of the movie and the introduction to our character and his escapism through film that they're trying to give us this angle of, well, watching too many movies may be bad for you, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to kind of sell the point of your movie, and that the violence from these movies is what's causing the uprise and youth gang crime and violence across the United States and all this tipper-gore bullshit, and it really takes that vibe. It has this pro-censorship feeling that this opposing character, this social worker, he blames television. I mean, not just movies television, music. This is why the nuclear family's broken up. This is why things aren't going well in America. It's all fucking TV's fault. It's that Charles Bronson. God damn it. And then after that theme is introduced, it's just forgotten. Not just forgotten, but the character is completely erased until the end of the movie. And when he shows up at the end of the movie, it's like, this asshole, he, if anything, the social worker, is the villain of Fade to Black because we're led to believe when he's introduced that the whole point of his character is to help evaluate 
and help the youth. And then the movie just becomes so spotty. We have the death of Eric's aunt slash mother, and after that it's almost a revenge story. He goes after a sex worker who he'd had an argument with, and she accidentally dies. The first two kills in the movie are because of him. You could say if he wasn't there, they wouldn't have happened, so he is responsible for them, but he didn't directly do them. So you can still have a little bit of sympathy with him, but the sex worker ends up dying and he drinks her blood. I'm like, okay. He went and saw Night of the Living Dead in the theater, and we've got this scene where we've got a close-up of his pupils dilating, like, Night of the Living Dead has triggered something. Again, going back to this whole thing with the social worker, that possibly there's a link between violence and television and movies and what's happening in America. Or the fact that we just live in a very, we, people that are from the United States. I, I know not everyone that listens to this program is from the United States, but it fucking, semantics, why am I explaining this? You guys easily understood what I'm saying, and now I don't even remember what the fuck I was supposed to be talking about. God damn it, Hank. But the United States is a specifically violent place with a very violent history, and I don't think even going back to British colonialization point of the United States, all you can ever learn is a history of violence. That's what American history is. But for the first act of this movie, television, film, media in general seems to be the whipping boy without any other point of maybe society is why people act the way that they act. But it means nothing. At some point, the character of Eric just snaps, and what we have with the editing of this movie from that point on becomes uh, really not tangible. It's just a multi-costumed killing spree. As Eric slips more and more into psychosis, his... Reality becomes more of a movie. He dresses up like Dracula to kill the sex worker. He dresses up like the original mummy to kill his boss. He dons a Hopalong Cassidy with the creepiest mask. Really, this has got to be like top 10 creepy movie masks to kill Mickey Rourke's character. You're headed for trouble and I'm stringing along. This is something personal, Johnny. I got a job to do. None of this is really justified. All right, the guy's a dick. And he made a bet with him at work that he's not paying up on. He's an asshole. Life is filled with him. You can't just go around shooting assholes. And the original opening shot of this movie was supposed to be Mickey Rourke's character, another co-worker, and Dennis Christopher's Eric all at a showing of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And they had shot at a theater playing the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So dozens of people in costume really having a ball, having a great time. And the point of the scene is everyone's having a great time except Eric Benford, who thinks they're all... Posers, essentially, doesn't think that any of them know anything about movies, that they're not even real horror fans, and he's having a miserable time, and everyone wants him to lighten up. And I really would have liked that. I think that would have... I like the opening scene. I think it's really beautiful, and it allows us to see this shell of who he is inside of his head that he's exposed as almost a comfort blanket, as like a force field around him in his room, his sanctuary. But being able to immediately see the nature of our character, because as Eric moves throughout the movie he becomes less and less likable but we're still depending on him to be our avatar so we're hoping we're, we're feeling bad for him but he progressively keeps doing worse and worse things where you really can't feel bad for the guy anymore and then you've got the linda carriage character marilyn o'connor a shocking look-alike of marilyn monroe eric is obsessed with marilyn and when he meets her it's really like dreams have come true but he's slowly not even really slowly He's full-on fucking, he's full-tilt boogie moving into psychosis. He's losing touch with reality and really assumes her to be Marilyn Monroe, that she's not dead, that he is fulfilling his life's dream. And then the movie just jumps from place to place to place. Again, we're supposed to feel sympathy with Eric as he is hitchhiking and meets Gary Bialy, played by Morgan Paul, a movie producer. He tells him this movie idea, which is almost entirely improv from Dennis Christopher. I said this a little while back, but the script was really bare bones. It didn't have anything to offer, so every day after shooting, Dennis would sit down with Erwin Yablis and Vernon Zimmerman, and they would go over what they needed to do the next day, and they would come up with 
he would come up with what the fuck the character is going to say. And a lot of the time, some of the most genius scenes of this movie are just Dennis Christopher being a brilliant actor. For example, when Aunt Stella falls down the stairs previous to that scene, you're watching Richard Widmark's Kiss of Death, the opening scene of that movie being when Richard Widmark pushes his landlady down the stairs. How very Arthur Schovenhauer. <laughs> you think a squealer can get away from me? Huh? <laughs> you know what I do to squealers? I let them have it in the belly. So they can roll around for a long time thinking it over. And it's not even foreshadowing. We know at that point that's directly what's going to happen. After she falls down the stairs, you've just got you've got Dennis Christopher saving the movie, saving the scene, turning it into something that is evil and diabolical, but then we directly are supposed to feel bad for the character in the next sequence. And even after he has committed murders, the Hopalong Cassidy murder happens, he shoots Mickey Rourke in an alley in cold blood. And we're supposed to have hope in the character because he gets picked up by the movie producer and he tells him this movie. I got this great idea for a movie. Peter Bogdanovich should direct it. It needs to be in black and white. Here's the whole idea. Gary Bialy says, you know what, kid? That is one hell of an idea. Give me a call sometime. I'll see what I can do for you. While watching TV a few days later, Eric sees on TV an interview with Gary Bialy's doing the whole thing. I came up with this idea. I was driving in my car. Everything was great. So he calls him and says... Oh, you're going to help me out. The guy, I, I don't know you, blah, 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 blah. Why are we supposed to be feeling bad for this person that we just saw murder somebody? So it's really conflicting, and that comes down to the editing of this movie, that it is just so jumpy. And there isn't an explanation for a lot of things. He just seems to be successfully living. We don't know anything, and if it wasn't for Dennis Christopher and using small things, like there's a scene where you can see a huge wad of cash in Eric's shirt, after that, he has rented a 1920s car and got a Tommy gun in this crazy suit. There's so much extravagant, crazy, crazy, crazy ideas in this movie. And I know I use this reference a lot, but it's like when a fucking six-year-old starts telling you a story and they're just so excited that everything that's in their mind starts coming out inside of the story. In this case, I feel it's an inexperienced writer and director who had a lot of passion and had a lot of great ideas and tried to formulate as much stuff from that passion into one idea and it's just exasperating it's way too much stuff and it seems like most of the things that were cut were storytelling devices that needed to be left in the movie and that vernon zimmerman wanted more action more horror more emotion and we might have needed more lethargic scenes of storytelling to figure out what the fuck's going on it just jumps from point to point to point to point you can't really have sympathy for eric you want to you can see a little bit of yourself if you're a cinephile in the character you can understand, at least, he's been abused, his life has been miserable, but it's just one of those things, it's like, well, did you know Jeffrey Dahmer was abused growing up? He fucking drilled holes in people's head and poured bleach into them. He fucking ate people. I don't care how bad the guy was abused. Well, Otis Tool's mother was really awful to him. He cut children's heads off, okay? You ever seen America's Most Wanted, John Walsh? Otis Tool cut that guy's fucking kid's head off. I don't care how bad his childhood was. Sure, I guess they could be cold-blooded, and it takes us back to something I was saying earlier, don't you think, especially for Americans, the history of absolute violence throughout our country isn't systematically turning people more and more violent, especially people with powers of authority. The police. The government. Anyone that can beat you with a stick. 
it's just all over the place. And I think there's a lot of emotion and there's a lot of brilliant ideas. I think there's a lot of strong ideas. And it just it's just so muddled. And the end of the movie, I think, is the most tragic thing. If if really anything, the movie, the whole movie is a tragedy. Because our character is is blindly and with extreme prejudice executed at the top of the Chinese theater in Hollywood. Very iconic. All of it's visually very, very attractive. I don't think it's shot specifically, you know, I'm going to write a letter about this and tell everybody they need to watch this movie because it's shot so fucking well. You know, it's not like Chinatown or something like that. But you go through this trip of old world Hollywood. You see so much that's not even uh, old world Hollywood because this movie was shot in 1980, but that is old world Hollywood now in 2021 because it's gone. Most of the theaters, the way the, the strip looks, the way L.A. looks in this movie, it just isn't. It's gone. All of this is gone. And when this movie was being shot, I think there was an essence of things being nouveau, that Eric Benford longs to be part of a golden age Hollywood that is a very hectic, congested, busy Los Angeles now, and it doesn't have any relevant feeling to what he yearns, what he wants his movie to be. And then now, 40 years later, you watch this movie, it's an era of L.A. and Hollywood that people like me, I yearn to be a part of it. You could go live in fucking Malibu for like $500 a month. You could go get a job. I mean, this is how Bill Paxton started. He wanted to work in film and said to his dad, you know, dad, I really want to work in movies. And his father knew somebody out in L.A. and said, OK, gave him a little bit of money, got him a bus ticket, sent him out to L.A. And he started working painting sets and was working for Roger Corman, met James Cameron. These two people obviously were like peas and carrots and they linked and we have some beautiful work because of them. And don't get me started on the Roger Corman film school, but I think this movie does have an influence from that. It obviously has an influence of somebody that loved famous monsters of Filmland, somebody that grew up with a lot of passion for film. And I, I don't mean in any of this, anything that I've said, I don't want it to be insulting because I think Vernon Zimmerman obviously is a talented person because I, I went out of my way to talk about this movie. And I know that doesn't mean much because a few episodes ago I was talking about fucking Andy Milligan, but I also like him. And it doesn't have to do with the fact that something is good or something is bad. Sometimes things are cut to hell and back. Sometimes studio involvement really fucks things up. Sometimes movies just aren't written well, but it doesn't mean the movie itself is bad. And I said at the beginning of this, I don't know if I can say, I don't know what I think about this movie, if it's good or if it's bad. I don't know if I'll ever have a full-on opinion. I have a lot of feelings about this movie, and I guess, I mean, that's, that's fucking a stupid proclamation to make. I don't know if I have a full opinion. It's been an hour of me having nothing but an opinion. But I don't know if I can ever say it's good or bad. I can say that Dennis Christopher is, is beautiful. He is good. He is insane. His talent is, oh man, watching this movie too, he's done so, he's done many, many big pictures. He has done very provocative work, bigger things than this. He's done many more, he's done... I think more emotional work than this, but the character, the work he put into this character, watching him is immaculate. I think watching Dennis Christopher is what makes this movie for me. I have a hard time with the, the disconnection, how just, it's not even so much continuity errors. The movie is just all over the place and it's very hard to have a solid emotion. It's very hard to continue feeling anything for not just Eric Benford, but anyone in this movie. It's all very, very shallow. And I mean, even at the end of the movie, he's drugging and not so much trying to kill the Marilyn O'Connor character, but he hands her a handful of pills and says, if you want to join me, take these. 
none of it's really a white knight. And then he's just murdered. He's just shot by the police. It's horrifying. We fade into his room. We get to see his brain, the shell of his security and his comfort. And then it fades to black. And you're left like, well, fuck, what was the point? What was the message? You start off with this, I, I feel almost anti-media message. You know, horror movies and heavy metal music are leading the children astray. It's got this like satanic panic feeling. And then it just is washed away from that halfway through the movie. Not even halfway. It's the end of the film. We get reintroduced to these characters and we have this kind of shoved in our face. If this guy wasn't obsessed with movies, he just went batshit. It's all his fault. All right. I mean, was that even necessary? I don't understand the emphasis, I guess, of some of the characters. And through the emphasis of some of the characters, I don't understand the murders that Eric Benford commits because the movie turns into a whole revenge thing. But the people he's seeking revenge upon... Yeah, your boss is an asshole, but murder's pretty extreme. Couldn't you have just toilet papered his car? Well, that would have been a terrible movie. Dennis Christopher, toilet paper somebody's car. The movie. Yeah, I mean, you, I hope you can at least see where I'm coming from with this. And if you viewed the movie, clearly, I mean, you, it, it's there. It's present. I'm not nitpicking. I'm not trying to pick things apart. I totally understand why this movie is celebrated by a great deal of people. Because when it came out, it was a different experience. And what's really unique about it is it doesn't just cater to horror audiences, it caters to cinephiles in general. And right now, 2021, I don't know how much of cult horror fans, exploitation fans, are really interested in golden era Hollywood. And it's, it's something I've had as an interest my entire life, and you think that would help connect me to this movie more. And I made a notion way earlier that a lot of the movie has these really great edits, one of the only good things about the editing, old Hollywood films. When Hopalong Cassidy's mentioned, you see Hopalong Cassidy. If the creature from the Black Lagoon's mentioned, you see the creature from the Black Lagoon. And these are all fantasies from Eric Benford's point of view. He doesn't fantasize about the world. He sees everything through movies. He sees everything through his expansive knowledge of movies, and that's his emotion. That's his way of escaping. If he's going to be a monster, then he's going to be the most horrifying monster he can be because that's all he knows. His experience in life has been just sort of ruined. His aunt slash mother hasn't really given him a chance to do anything. She has kept him in a stupor feeling as if he couldn't do anything for so long that all he's been able to do is escape through cinema. Which is such a great theme. It's something that would have been much more successful to focus on instead of we go into this weird movies are making people violent plot then we have the revenge aspect and then a weird strained love angle because what we learn with the Linda Carriage character Marilyn O'Connor is her and Eric Benford aren't that different both of them just want to live in the movies and we don't even really focus on that the death of his aunt ends up happening just because of bad timing. He has a date with Marilyn, and she just gets the time wrong and is a little bit late, and he goes home so dejected that when his aunt comes in with her usual tirade of negativity, he just snaps. All right, I can understand that. And then we just drop the Marilyn character for her to show up again at the end of the movie to wrap things up in an unneat, sloppy bow. I just wish that Dennis Christopher could have directed this. I wish that he could have just fully taken over. He had so many ideas. He brought so much to the table from set design to the dimensions of all the characters, not just his. 
he really he really would have been the most beneficial thing to this movie having been able to direct it or at least overseeing or having a hand in editing which is a lot for an actor of course why would he be in the editing room and that's wishful thinking but it would have been such a deeper philosophical a much more meaningful product if if Dennis Christopher had been able to direct this movie and he was very young at the time that would have been you know, a one in a million chance for something like that to happen. But I think it's a one in a million character. And to wrap all of this up, we're very lucky that Dennis Christopher got this role. We're very lucky that he brought this character to life. Though I feel this movie is very incomplete, it's a rough ride, it's choppy, and it's hard to relate. Even as somebody that loves golden era Hollywood, even somebody, even as somebody that adores film of all capacity in general, except musicals, I really, there's like two, not a fan of musicals. I have a hard time conditioning myself to relate to this because it's just all over the place. And there's really not a solid tone. It, it's very difficult to grab on and get something out of this. What you get is Dennis Christopher. I think that's the emotion. I think that's what makes this movie magical and makes it watchable and rewatchable. And the first time you watch this, it's Dennis Christopher that you focus on. You don't see the incomplete nature of this movie. The first time I watched it, I was I wow. I can't believe I hadn't seen this before. And this isn't some storied thing that I saw this back when I was 14. The very first time I saw it is when it came out on Shudder. I thought it was a hoot. So I went over to Vinegar Syndrome and I purchased a copy of it. And that was about it. We finally got the request to do it. And I said, all right, let's sit down and go back over this movie. And it wasn't until the second time I watched it that I really started to see the faults. But that itself is really unique. It is the overwhelming beauty of Dennis Christopher's performance the first time you watch this movie, I think you're really able to get over and not see some of the problems. But it does become unfortunate upon your second viewing where it's like, well, what the fuck? What is that? What is this character even in the movie for? Who is this guy? And Tim Somerson's character, Dr. Jerry Moriarty, is the most useless in the movie. There's no point. It doesn't offer anything. We should have just focused on Eric Benford and him detaching, him losing control. And I think really we could have manipulated and handled things a lot better instead of turning him into a vicious murderer because you can't have any sympathy for that. In revenge movies like I Spit on Your Grave or Miss 45, sure, you have sympathy for the character because of what's happened to them. But in this essence, he just kind of has a dick for a boss and his life really sucks. Yeah, I understand that there's much more to that. But you got to show it. You got to put it in there. We get these little snippets and we understand that his life is miserable, but we need more than that to capacitate the violence. You can't just have violence for the sake of violence. There needs to be a reason for it, and we don't really have a reason for it. It looks good, the costumes are great, everything is enjoyable, but I think it's a very skin-deep level of what is enjoyable with this movie. There's a lot of idolatry. I think there's a point of... Him idolizing not just certain actors, but film in general. The idea of escapism through film is almost a god to him. It really is idolatry, and that idea would have been really terrific to continue with. You get to the end of the movie, and you see him vanquished by the LAPD, and it's just a tragedy. It's, it's sardonic, it's upsetting, and I think it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Our hopes and dreams are splattered on the side of the road like Eric's body. We're given this false idea of hope with Eric. We're given this false idea of hope with all of the characters that something's going to happen, that there's at least going to be progression with them. And at the end of the film, all of that is splattered on the sidewalk. But what else would you have done with the character? What else would you have done to end the movie? The format and the flow, and I think the idea of this was to be presented to you like, 
an old school Hollywood movie, uh, an old Howard Hawks film, a Richard Widmock movie. As he detaches from society and drifts further into psychosis, Eric takes on the persona of the character Cody Jarrett from the movie White Heat, played by James Cagney, and that too becomes something that could have been focused on throughout the movie. There were so many options, there were so many angles, so many unique things that could have been used to condition the audience with this character to see them going insane so we don't have all this hope, so we don't have all this building up just to be shot down literally off man's Chinese theater at the end of the movie. At the end of this movie, I'm disappointed. I, I'm not happy with what happens to Eric. I'm not happy with what happens to our emotions as the viewer. But what are you going to do? Really, I think we're lucky to have the performance from Dennis Christopher. I think any horror aficionado, yet alone a cinephile, would deeply enjoy what he does. And he did everything for this performance. Though this movie comes off to me, in my humble opinion, to be incomplete, to feel very choppy and I feel jaded at the end of it. It's worth seeing because of Dennis Christopher. If you can ignore that, if you can get through that and just realize, okay, this is how it is, this is just how it's going to be, you can really value and enjoy and cherish this performance. That's the movie, Dennis Christopher, an immense talent. So, Brian P., I don't know if this is exactly what you wanted. You asked for my opinion, and you got it. So at the end of this episode, I guess really, it was one big kiss-ass piece to Dennis Christopher. <laughs> A talented guy, though. I mean, sometimes you gotta have a spotlight. Fade to black, 1980. I think that's gonna do it for this episode. You've been listening to the smooth sounds of Hank, the world's greatest. And you'll be hearing from me again next week. If you've got a movie you'd like to hear on Death by DVD, just go to www.deathbydvd.com, scroll to the bottom, or click the chat window, send us a message, and I'll get back to you real soon. And with that, the ashtray is full. And the bottle is empty. Have a pleasant tomorrow. On the next episode of Death by DVD. Hank, the world's greatest, is a former professional hockey player who has been banned from the league because of gambling and tax evasion costs. In order to avoid spending time in jail, Hank agrees to do five years of community service as a social worker. The problem is he wasn't properly trained, other than operating the coffee machine. <laughs> Helping Hank is Alexander Nash, previously his social worker who is now his co-worker and best friend. Find out what happens next week on this stupid goddamn show that just won't end. Oh, and rest in peace, Norm MacDonald. It should have been Jim Brewer. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. <laughs>